Jeremiah 39, 1 to 10 is our passage. Many of you know that I'm a Kansas Jayhawk basketball fan, and I thought about the Jayhawks this week. A few years ago, we had a point guard named Nadir Tharp, and I always wondered about his story growing up with his mother when he was born. always thought that was an interesting name. Nadir is an Arabic word that means the bottom or the low point, and I just always assumed that his mother didn't know what the word actually meant when she named her son Nadir, but I thought about him this week when I read this passage. This is the Nadir, the bottom, the low point for the history of the nation of Israel. This is the the story that we have been building to for weeks now. We've been listening to Jeremiah in all of his warnings. He's been warning about an exile, and in this passage, the exile finally comes. This is the low point. You could even say it's the low point of the entire Old Testament. Maybe you would put Genesis 3 above that. In fact, you probably would. The fall of mankind, that would probably be the lowest of the lows. But this would be right there behind it. We're going to talk about the relationship between those two things this morning. So we're going to start with just a little bit of context so you know what's happening in this battle and this defeat of Jerusalem. Nebuchadnezzar, was the king of Babylon. Nebuchadnezzar in Babylon attacked the nation of Judah several times during the reigns of Jehoiakim, during the reign of Jehoiakim, and during the reign of Zedekiah. These are the last three kings of Judah. During the reign of Jehoiakim, Babylon attacked Judah. They essentially conquered Judah, but they allowed Jehoiakim to stay on the throne. He paid them a king's ransom to leave them alone. They left him on the throne But his nation was occupied from that point forward. The next king was Jehoiakim. He was king for all of three months. Ninety days he sat on the throne until Babylon marched and defeated Jerusalem, deposed Jehoiakim as king, and installed a new king, Zedekiah. There were a a group of exiles taken when the the Babylonians defeated Jehoiakim. There was another wave taken in our passage 11 years later at the end of Zedekiah's reign, the very last king of Judah. And that's what we're talking about, the end of Zedekiah, which is absolutely horrific, and the end of the nation of Judah and Jewish sovereignty over the city of Jerusalem. That's some of the context. In the context within Jeremiah... I just want you to know, remember this book is not chronological. When you get to the very end of the book, Jeremiah 52 describes this exact same story. He tells this story twice, once here, once when you get to the very end of the book. The description in chapter 52 is a bit longer. You can also read about the fall of Jerusalem in the book of Lamentations, which we're going to talk about this morning in 2 Kings as well as 2 Chronicles. One more thing you need to know before we talk about Jeremiah 39 is a detail from Jeremiah 38. Jeremiah 38, 14 to 28, details a private conversation between Jeremiah the prophet and Zedekiah the king just days before the fall of Jerusalem. They had this secret, private conversation, the prophet and the king, the godly prophet, the godless king. And Jeremiah looked at Zedekiah in the eyes and essentially he said, this is your last chance. This is your last chance. You can surrender to Nebuchadnezzar. You will not be killed, and the city of Jerusalem will stand. Option one. Or, 
Option two, you can refuse to surrender to the king of Babylon. You will be killed and the city will be destroyed. Jeremiah said, these are your two choices. It's come down to this. It's just days before chapter 39 took place. Zedekiah chose option two. He refused to surrender to the king of Babylon. He refused to listen to Jeremiah the prophet. He refused to listen to God's warning. In the end, he lost his life and the city was essentially destroyed. That brings us to the big idea of this passage as we think about Zedekiah in the end of Judah. Sin results in separation, wrath, and death. It's the consequence of human sin. Separation from God. Separation from God. God's wrath being poured out on us. The result of the the consequence of our sin, and ultimately sin leads to death. We see that in Jeremiah 39. I just quickly want you to see that there were other people and there's other passages around this same time essentially saying these truths. Take, for example, Isaiah. Isaiah 59. Isaiah lived before Jeremiah, but he talked about the same things. He said, Behold, the Lord's hand is not shortened that it cannot save, or his ear dull that it cannot hear, but your iniquities have made a separation between you and your God, and your sins have hidden his face from you so that he does not hear. He was warning about the judgment to come for Judah, and he said, your sin has made this separation between you and God. Look what we read as the chronicler describes the fall of Judah. Second Chronicles 36 Looking at this same event, he says, The Lord, the God of their fathers, sent persistently to them by his messengers, men like Jeremiah, the prophets. But they kept mocking the messengers of God, despising his words and scoffing at his prophets until the wrath of the Lord rose against his people until there was no remedy. This is what sin does. It causes a separation between us and God. It invites the wrath of God. On us, and ultimately it leads to death. Jeremiah himself in the book of Lamentations looked back on this moment and he said, Look, O Lord, for I am in distress. My stomach churns. My heart is wrung within me because I have been very rebellious. In the street, the sword bereaves. In the house, it is like death. And as he wrote those poetic lines, he's talking about the Babylonians invading Jerusalem. Separation, wrath, and death. That's the result of sin. For the people of Judah, that's the result of sin today and our lives. It's not a very happy, encouraging, positive, uplifting big idea, but it's the big idea of this passage, and it's one that we need to reckon with. In a sense, you could say we're dealing with a tragedy. A tragedy. A tragedy is a type of story. And if you talk to smart people who study stories and write stories and uh, analyze stories, they'll say to you there's really a limited number of stories that can be told. Most of the time when we go to the movies, we're just watching the same old story being told over and over and over and over again. In fact, some scholars say there's about seven types of stories. And I'll just mention them quickly and I'll give you an example of each. The first type of story would be overcoming the monster. The hero has to defeat the villain. And the James Bond movies are classic examples of this. There's a good guy, there's a bad guy. I know he's not a monster in the Bond movies, but he's the bad guy. He's the villain. He's the monster. And the good guy has to save the day. Here's a second type of story, rags to riches. The hero goes from nothing to everything and sometimes back to nothing and then back 
to everything. And Cinderella would be an example of that. The Count of Monte Cristo would be an example of that. Somebody goes from everything to nothing to everything to nothing. It's a story of rags to riches. Here's another example of story type, the quest. The hero goes on a mission. They've got to get something or they've got to do something. There's something in front of them that they're trying to accomplish or obtain. And a great example of that would be Tolkien's Lord of the Rings. Here's another story type, voyage and return. The hero goes to a new land. He has some sort of experience that changes the hero upon his return. And you think about the Lion King and Simba, and he's got to go to a new place. He's got to figure out who he is, and then he's got to come back, and he's different when he comes back. It's just a basic story type. Here's another, comedy. The main character faces a mild crisis that is easily resolved with a happy ending. This is every American sitcom, I think the greatest of which is Everybody Loves Raymond. There's nothing earth-shattering or traumatic or deadly that ever takes place in these stories. It's just a mild problem, and the hero has to figure out some way or often stumble into some way for everything to be resolved by the end of your 30-minute episode so that when the credits roll, you say, ah, everything's nice and neat with a bow on it. So that's a comedy. Here's another one, a story of rebirth. The main character is forced to change and become a better person. And this is vividly displayed in Groundhog Day, where he is just reborn every day in the same day over and over and over again. And the point is, he has to change. He's just experiencing something that causes him to change, and that leads to the end of the story. The last type, which we're thinking about, is tragedy. The main character has a flaw or he makes a mistake that leads to their downfall in the audience feels pity. You think of Romeo and Juliet and this tragic mistake that is made in the story and you get to the end and you say, well, that's just too bad. That is unfortunate. What we're dealing with as you think about these story types would definitely fall into the category of tragedy with a small twist. The hero of this story is not Judah or Jerusalem or Zedekiah. The hero of this story is the Lord. He has no character flaws and he makes absolutely no mistakes. The tragedy in this story is not his doing, it's the doing of his people who are deeply flawed and who make many, many mistakes persistently and unrepentantly. And the end of this story is literally heartbreaking and gut-wrenching. We read the verse from Jeremiah earlier where he said his stomach churns within him. I know that it's hard thousands of years later, reading Jeremiah 39 to work up any sort of emotion. But when you read about the siege and the fall of this city, and you read about the end of Zedekiah, I understand that Zedekiah was a wicked man. And in a theological sense, he got what was coming to him. But it's a tragic end. You ought to read it, and it ought to move you on the inside parts of who you are, and you ought to think, this is terrible. What a terrible, terrible tragedy. So we're going to try to make sense of it this morning. We're going to talk about the backstory, the story, and then in good Paul Harvey fashion, the rest of the story. So we'll start with the backstory. This story played out in the opening chapters of the Bible. I just want to make this observation that what we're reading about Judah and their fall, this story has happened before. It's not the first time you've read this story if you've read the Bible. In fact, the opening pages of Scripture tell the exact same story. 
consider this. In the beginning, God creates. The pinnacle of his creation is a special people who are placed in a special land. God creates this people and he creates this land in miraculous fashion so that his glory is put on display for all the world to see. There are miracles, but the glory of God is soon followed by the sin of his people, the rebellion of his people, and the consequence of that sin and rebellion is exile. Adam and Eve have to leave the presence of God. They don't get to live with God because of their sin. There's separation. There's wrath. You think about the flood and the judgment of God poured out on mankind in that cataclysm. And there's death. God had promised Adam and Eve that on the day you eat of it, you will die. Spiritually, they did die. And you turn just a few pages later to Genesis 5, and you read about Adam and all his descendants, and the emphasis is very hard to miss. He lived all these years, and he died. He lived all these years, and he died, and he died, and he died, and he died. That's the story that we're talking about in Jeremiah 39. In this story, God created. He created a special people, starting with Abraham, then moving up through the time in Egypt and the Exodus. He took those people out of slavery. He he put them in a special land, the promised land, with Joshua and the conquest. He performed amazing miracles and put his glory on display for all to see But the people sinned, and they rebelled against God. And now we come to the consequence of their sin. It's always the same with sin. This is the result of sin. For the people back then, for Adam and Eve, for you and I today, exile from God's presence, the wrath of God being poured out on his people, and death. That's the consequence of sin. So we've seen this story before. Jeremiah has been warning about it, which leads us to this part of the backstory. This story was predicted in the opening chapters of Jeremiah. And by the opening chapters of Jeremiah, I mean all the chapters that came before this chapter. Right up until the day before, essentially, as he's talking with Zedekiah in this private conversation in chapter 38, Jeremiah's been warning him exile is coming. Exile is coming. What did the people do? When Jeremiah preached and they listened to this warning, well, they laughed at Jeremiah. They laughed at him. Uh, They threatened to hurt him. At times, they actually did hurt him physically. They locked him up in solitary confinement. They banned him from the temple. His own family organized a plot to have him put to death because they didn't want to listen to what he had to say about this coming exile. Just a few chapters before our passage, a group of men took Jeremiah, threw him in the bottom of an old dried-out well, a cistern, and left him to die. They did a lot of things in response to Jeremiah's preaching. The one thing they did not do was listen. They did not listen. They did not repent. So... That's the back story. Now let's talk about the story. It's a horrific story. Jeremiah's telling of this story is cold, factual, and it does not mention the Lord. Verse 1 to 10. We read some horrific things. Nowhere in it did we read about the Lord. Sort of reminds me as Jeremiah tells the story here of Dragnet, Joe Friday. Just the facts, ma'am. 
I don't need any interpretive embellishment. Just give me the facts. And so Jeremiah, that's what he's doing. He's just giving you the facts. And it's just fascinating that in all the facts that he details in this final fall of Jerusalem, he doesn't mention the Lord. Let's be honest. Why would he? Why would he? These people want nothing to do with the Lord. Generation after generation after generation has turned their backs on Yahweh, the God of Israel, to follow all the gods and goddesses of all the peoples all around them. For generations, these people have looked at God and shook their finger and said, leave us alone. So he did. And here came the king of Babylon. And he marched into the city. And Jeremiah recounts the destruction. I imagine... You may disagree, but I I imagine, and I feel pretty strongly about this, that when the people were being slaughtered and the city was being conquered and the siege works were being built and they were being led out of the city into exile, all these people who wanted absolutely nothing to do with the Lord, I imagine that there was a group of them, probably many of them, saying things like, where is the Lord when we needed him the most? How could the Lord let something so horrible happen to his people, in his temple, in his nation, in his king? The answer is God really hadn't left them alone. God was in the midst of all of it, actually working through Nebuchadnezzar and the Babylonians, the Chaldeans. He was working judgment against his people And that judgment, I don't know really a great word to summarize this, but it was horrific. The fall of Jerusalem was a horrific, absolutely horrific moment in Israel's history. Horror is the word that we're talking about here. This was a horrific moment. It's really not the place for jokes or anecdotes or humor. It's just a horrific experience for the people who lived in this city. You piece things together from... Old Testament history and some Babylonian history. The dates look something like this. January 588 B.C., the Babylonians arrive. They begin besieging Jerusalem. The people hold up in the city. They pile up as much food as they can. They set guards and they try to defend their city. Scholars debate as you look at Jeremiah and Chronicles and Kings about exactly how long this siege lasts. It was somewhere between 18 and 30 months. But in July... Of 587 or maybe 586 B.C., there's this breach in the wall. The city falls. And the officials, we read all their funny names and their funny titles. These officials of Babylon march in to the middle gate of the city. Essentially town hall. Don't think like the outer wall, but think like town hall, city hall, the county courthouse. They march to the seat of government and these Babylonian officials take their seat as a show of power, and as a show to everyone in Jerusalem that this thing is over. We have conquered you. We now rule you. It was horrific. There's an entire book of the Bible devoted to this experience. Just think about that, the book of Lamentations. The whole book written to describe the horror, and it was horrific, of the fall of Jerusalem. And when you read Lamentations, there's some stuff in there that you think, Well, that's really graphic. That's really shocking. It's horrific. That's what God is trying to say to his people. There's a Jewish historian named Josephus. He describes 
the fall of Jerusalem to the Babylonians like this. He says, the battering ram took its last run at the walls. Darts, think arrows from the enemy's siege mounds, arched into the midnight sky and struck their mark in flames. Famine, book of Lamentations talks about this. Famine had already claimed many lives inside the city walls. Remember, it's 18 or 30 months. They're not able to leave the city and get anything to eat. So they're literally starving to death in the city. Five Babylonian princes marched through the streets of Jerusalem, their faces illuminated by the flames of destruction. It was horrific. And it was exactly what Jeremiah said was going to happen. He'd been warning the people, Babylon will come. If you don't surrender and you don't repent, you will be conquered, the city will be destroyed, and you will be taken into exile. All of it happened just like he said. One reminder as you think about this story, this is important. Zedekiah's demise, this last king of Judah, his downfall reminds us of the danger of unrepentant sin. The danger of unrepentant sin. And I just want you to think about the fact that days earlier, this king looked at Jeremiah and Jeremiah said, there is a way out for you. There's a way out. You can humble yourself and listen to the Lord. He didn't even ask him to repent specifically. He just said, just surrender to the king of Babylon. That's what the Lord is telling you to do. Just once in your life, Zedekiah, do what the Lord God is telling you to do. Submit, give in, raise the white flag. You will live, your family will live, the nobles will live, and the city will not be destroyed. And then came the day, think about this day in the life of Zedekiah. He woke up the king of Judah reigning in Jerusalem. He went to bed, eyeless, sunless, throneless, being marched into exile. I thought this week about that first night when Zedekiah tried to lay his head down. No sons, no kingdom, no eyeballs to close as he goes to sleep. But he lays his head down to go to sleep on the first night, being deposed as a king, being taken into exile. I don't think it's a stretch of the imagination to think that he felt regret in that moment. I can't help but think that his mind kept playing If only I could hit rewind, and I know that he didn't know what a rewind button is, but if only I could hit rewind and go back two days, three days, one week. If I could just go back a week, they would still conquer us. They would still rule over us, but at least I would have eyeballs. And at least the last thing that I saw on earth wouldn't be the slaughter of my own children. I imagine that as he laid his head down that night and many nights to come, he thought to himself what I have heard so many people say to me is they're dealing with the consequences of sin. I imagine he thought to himself something like this, if I had only known how bad it would be in the end, I would have repented much sooner. People tell me that on a regular basis. They find themselves dealing with the consequences of sin and they look at me and they say, if I had known that this would have been the result, 
I would have never done it in the first place. I would have turned long ago. I would have changed my ways long ago. And you read this story, and I would just say to you, husbands and wives and moms and dads and grandparents, business owners, employees, working folks, retired folks, youth, college students, whatever, whoever, deal with unrepentant sin in your life today so that you don't have to deal with the consequences of it tomorrow. Don't be the person who walks into the pastor's office and says, if only I had known that this is what was going to happen. You do know. You know. The Bible tells you from the book of Genesis all the way through the end, this is the consequence, this is the result of sin. It separates you from a relationship with God. Unrepentant sin severs your relationship with God. It brings God's wrath and his judgment on your life, and it ultimately leads to death. There was a prophecy spoken about Zedekiah. I imagine when it was spoken, it seemed foolish. Ezekiel, you can look it up in Ezekiel chapter 12. Ezekiel said, the king of Judah will be taken to Babylon, but he will not see Babylon. And I imagine people heard Ezekiel, and they laughed at him just like they laughed at Jeremiah. What a ridiculous thing to say. How could you not see it if you were taken there? Well, this is how it happened. King was conquered. His sons were slaughtered right in front of his eyes. His eyes were gouged out, and he was hauled to exile in a foreign land. It's absolutely horrific. Deal with sin, unrepentant sin today, so that you don't have to deal with the consequences of it tomorrow. Now let's talk about the rest of the story. Thankfully, Thankfully, Jeremiah 39 is not the last chapter in Jeremiah. It's not the last chapter in the Old Testament, and it's certainly not the last chapter in the Bible. So there is more story that we need to be aware of. We'll start with this. Even in the fall of Jerusalem, the Lord provided for Jeremiah and his friend, who you likely have never heard of, Ebed-Melech. God's grace was evident in providing for these two men. When you read Jeremiah, the rest of 38 and into 40, excuse me, the rest of 39 and into 40, it seems like what happened is that Jeremiah was initially chained and taken out of the city in this long line of prisoners to Babylon. But at some point, Nebuchadnezzar himself, who had done his research on the people of Judah and who knew about Jeremiah, pulled him out of the prisoner line, took the chains off of him, and said, this man is allowed to go back and stay in the city. God provided that he didn't have to go into exile. Jeremiah got to stay. And the Lord provided for Jeremiah's friend. Look at Jeremiah 39, and let's just read 16, 17, and 18. Go, say to Ebed-Melech the Ethiopian, Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, Behold, I will fulfill my words against this city for harm and not for good. They shall be accomplished before you on that day, but I will deliver you on that day, declares the Lord, and you shall not be given into the hand of the men of whom you are afraid, for I will surely save you, and you shall not fall by the sword, but you shall have your life as a prize of war. Here's the reason. Ebed-Melech survived the whole thing. It's because you have put Your trust in me, declares the Lord. Here is an African man. We have no idea how he ends up in Jerusalem, but he trusts the Lord. Remember I told you that Jeremiah was thrown in that 
empty well, that cistern, and just left to die? Well, the man that pulled him out was Ebed-Melech. He risked his own neck and his own reputation to get Jeremiah out and to save his life. He was a, a moral man, an upstanding man, a courageous man, but none of those are the reasons that he was saved from death and separation and exile. The reason that he was saved is that he trusted in the Lord. This is a man saved by God's grace through faith. All the people, the king, the nobles, the laborers, all the people of Jerusalem, they trust in the gods of the nations. This man, Ebed-Melech, trusts in the Lord and God provides for him. There's hope even in this disastrous story. That's the next passage in Jeremiah, but let's keep going in the Old Testament storyline. Eventually, these exiles returned, and they returned with men like Zerubbabel, Ezra, Nehemiah, Haggai, Zechariah, and Malachi. God had been saying through Jeremiah that the people would go into exile. He'd been saying it would last 70 years, and that's how long it lasted. And at the end of 70 years, God provided through pagan kings for his people to come back. And they were led by people like Zerubbabel who came back and helped rebuild the temple. They were led back by men like Ezra who came back to teach the law of God, the law that had been neglected for so many years. They were led by men like Nehemiah who came to rebuild the wall that the Babylonians had destroyed. They were accompanied by men like Haggai and Zechariah and Malachi, post-exilic prophets that came back, sent by the Lord to say, Thus says the Lord, turn from your sin and trust in the Lord. Turn from your sin and trust in the Lord. They said it over and over and over again. Turn from your sin and trust in the Lord. So there's hope. These exiles come home. But it gets better than that because when you go from the Old Testament to the New, from the book of Malachi to the last prophet, John the Baptist, we learn this. In the fullness of time, God sent his only son to die for our sins on the cross. This is where the story gets really amazing. We've been talking about sin. We've been talking about the consequences of sin. You see it as early as the opening chapters of Genesis. You see it here in Jeremiah 39. Sin leads to separation from God. It leads to God's wrath being poured out on sinful people, and it ultimately leads to death. The Bible says that in the fullness of time, God sent his son, his only son, his unique son, Jesus, he came to deal with our sin. There was a prophet before Jeremiah named Isaiah who gave this prophecy about Jesus. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. He was pierced for our transgressions, not for his own. He had none of his own. He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. And upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds, we are healed. It's a promise. It's a prophecy that someday God would send someone to truly and finally deal with the sin problem of his people. And it's a promise that the Apostle Paul looked back on and saw fulfilled at the cross. Paul said this in 2 Corinthians 5.21. For our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Jesus had no sin. He knew no sin. He was sinless, spotless, pure. And the Lord God made him sin for us. 
He was crushed and he was smitten and he was afflicted for our iniquities. Why? So that in Jesus, we sinful people might become the righteousness of God. This is the hope of the gospel. Thank God that Jeremiah 39 is not the last chapter in the Bible. It would be really depressing. But in the fullness of time, God did something to deal with our sin problem. Instead of being separated from God, we can be reconciled to God. Instead of being objects of God's wrath, we can be adopted as his children. And instead of experiencing eternal death, we can receive eternal life. God sent his son Jesus to deal with sin and all of its consequences on behalf of his people. And there's more. One day, Jesus will return. He will judge the world and he will live with his people in a new creation. God will create something new for a special people. There will be miracles. It will display his glory. And then the plot line that we saw in Genesis and Jeremiah 39 will change because there will be no more sin and no more rebellion. You can read about this in Revelation 20 and 21 and 22. Jesus comes back. It is amazingly glorious. He judges the living and the dead. And he ushers in a new creation, a new Jerusalem, the Bible says, where God will live with his people, just like he intended in Eden, just like he intended in the tabernacle and the temple, just like he intends now through his Holy Spirit, God will live with his people. You get to the end of the story, and one of the things that you realize is that the Bible includes little t tragedies, but it is not a big t tragedy. Those tragedies are just chapters in a larger story. Just to go back to the story types we talked about earlier, you can think about the story of the Bible in a lot of different ways. You can think about it as a story of overcoming the monster. It's a story of Jesus coming to crush the head of the serpent all the way back in Genesis 3 to defeat sin, to defeat death for his people. It's a story of rags to riches with a fascinating twist because the king of heaven leaves his riches to take on the rags of a servant. Why? So that he might lay down his life to the point of death, even death on a cross, so that he might be highly exalted back to the throne where he belongs. It's a story of a quest of Jesus, the king of heaven, leaving his throne and going on a mission to redeem his people to make them his own. It's a story of voyage and return where the hero, Jesus, leaves and he comes back, not just as God, but as the God-man, changed once and forever to redeem his people. It's a story that's a comedy, not in the sense of ha-ha funny, but in the story of the ultimate happy ending comes true in the end. All the plot tensions are resolved. It's a story of rebirth, of Jesus not only dying but being raised from the dead so that his people could also be raised from the dead. What it's not in the grand scheme of things is a tragedy. There are small tragedies in the story, and we're looking at one in Jeremiah 39, but the overarching story of the Bible is no tragedy. And here's the most beautiful part of all of it. You are in the story. You may realize that or not realize that, You may be in it for good or for bad. You may be in it for life or for death, but you're in the story. 
And the call on your life this morning is to do what Jeremiah did, is to listen to the word of the Lord and respond appropriately. It's to do what Ebed-Melech did, not to be a hero, not to be very moral and very courageous, but to do what Ebed-Melech did, to trust the Lord, to put your faith in the one true God, to believe that he has done everything that needed to be done to save you and to bring you into his kingdom through his son, Jesus Christ. It's a wonderful story. The challenge for you is to find your place in this story as someone who trusts the Lord and who believes the good news about Jesus.